We want to thank Hugh Fauchy for leading us in this first part of our worship. Hugh is the Director of Admissions for Montreat Anderson College. By the way, he has another distinction. There are 13 cities in the United States named Paris. One of them is Paris, Arkansas, and one of them is Paris, Texas. So we cornered the market. We got two of them. So he had them here this morning. Uh, now then, uh, our second lesson is taken from Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all of those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. And so there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then in the New Testament from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And then verse 22. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. And now let us worship God with... I used to have a seminary professor who warned us about preaching Mother's Day sermons. He said, preach all of your sermons on the family before you have a family. And he always gave as an example uh, a bright young student that he had who had a lecture which he prepared and delivered with great eloquence on the family. The first uh, 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 time that he gave this lecture, he called it Ten Commandments for Bringing Up Children. That was before he got married. After he got married and had a wife and his first child, he decided that he ought to change the title of his lecture to Ten Suggestions for Bringing Up Children. <laughs> and after his second child, the head of the household changed the title of his lecture 
to some hints for bringing up children. And then after the third child, he quit giving the lecture altogether. <laughs> the Bible is filled with wonderful accounts of how the sovereignty of God works in the lives and hearts and minds of individuals. Rachel did not have the great privilege of seeing her son Joseph go through all of the experiences that we know about him. But Rachel must have had an influence on his young life. And when you stop to think of other great mothers in scripture, you see this as well. I have had printed in the bulletin, the print's a little small, but if you'll take it and look at it, you'll find a poem by Ruth Graham, which I think is not only an excellent piece of poetry, but a very helpful study for Mother's Day and an excellent little Bible study to use as well. Had I been Joseph's mother, I'd have prayed protection from his brothers. God keep him safe, he is so young, so different from the others. Mercifully, she never knew there would be slavery and prison too. Had I been Moses' mother, I'd have wept to keep my little son, praying she might forget the babe drawn from the water of the Nile. Had I not kept him for her, nursing him the while, was he not mine and she but Pharaoh's daughter? Had I been Daniel's mother, I should have pled give victory. This Babylonian horde, godless and cruel, don't let them take him captive. Better dead, almighty Lord. Had I been Mary, oh, had I been she, I would have cried as never mother cried. Anything, oh God anything but crucified. With such prayers importunate, my finite wisdom would assail infinite wisdom. God, how fortunate, infinite wisdom should prevail. That's a good Bible study. And it's right in line with what we have today in the life of Joseph and what happens to all of us in the establishment of our homes and also in the character that is made of the, the process of making character out of our lives. I think that in every home there comes time, there come times of trials, of hardship and adversity. That to every man or home there comes time of times of temptation. To all of us there come reverses and disappointments. There comes so, to most of us, some period of prosperity. And there sometimes comes opportunities for showing grace and forgiveness. One of the great preachers of America used to say that Joseph was the greatest Christian in the Old Testament. And I think when you stop to look at Joseph and identify with him, you can see the hand of God in preserving a nation. I have a little sign in my office that says, God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. <laughs> God sends men and women, and he sends them to accomplish his purposes. And so in this 
young boy Jacob, uh, Joseph, we, uh, Jacob's son Joseph, we see a mistake made because Jacob loved Rachel very much. And Joseph was the son of his old age. And Joseph was gifted and talented and skilled. And his father saw all of this brilliance in him. But he did a, a thing that caused Joseph some trouble. He began to pay special attention to him and to award him and designate him in certain ways that only created jealousy from his brothers. And Joseph, being very young, uh, fell into the trap of thinking more about himself at an early age than perhaps he should have. And this is why I placed in the bulletin also one of the great Bible studies of the character of Joseph uh, by Alexander White. In chapter 37, we read these words, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wife. And Joseph brought back a bad report about his brothers to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons. Because he was the son of his old age and he made him a colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than the others and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And Joseph said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves all gathered round and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And still he had another dream and related it to his brothers. Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him. What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow down ourselves before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. Now, evidently, this was a gifted young man, but he made the mistake of speaking too much about his gifts uh, to his brothers. And what Alexander White points out to us that Joseph was only 17 years old when his two so intoxicating dreams came to him. You must always recall Joseph's unripe years and his incomplete experience before you blame him too much for the way he talked about his prerogatives and prospects. The time will come when all of Joseph's splendid achievements and his matchless honor and glory will not make Joseph open one lip about himself. Now see if this gets you under conviction as it does me. So intent was he 
in what so much interested himself that he did not see the ugly looks on the faces of his brothers. And like Joseph, until we are well past 17 and have been for a long time away from home, we talk about nothing else but our own dreams. Other men dreamed last night as well as we, but they never get their mouth open where we are. We talk the whole table down. We have just come from the pulpit or from the platform or from the desk or from a, vis a visit or an entertainment or from whatever, and our vain hearts are full. We never think that all the other people at the table are just as full of themselves as we are, and we never see that they also are bursting to get at the only topic that interests them, which is not at all the, the same topic that so interests us. We mistake that silence and that suspense. We think that all that silence and all that suspense means that all our audience are as full of our own interests as we ourselves, and, we are, and that they are waiting to hear us, while all the time they can scarcely contain themselves with weariness and disgust. Be sure your company is as full of you as you are of yourself before you give rein to your galloping tongue. Be sure that they all worship you. Be sure that you are their God. Be sure that they are all your wife and children. And be sure that they have no interest or occupation or vanities of their own. Be sure of all their love and devotion and patience. In short, be sure that you are in heaven before you keep the whole house waiting to break their fast until you have told all your dreams of last night. Now that's a matchless word from a remarkable preacher. And this is painting the background for Joseph. Now Joseph is going to be used by God. If you stop and think about uh, Abraham, he was a considerable businessman and that Jewish talent for business begins to come down through this long succession of people. And it's still here till today. And if you saw the events on television in the past couple of weeks, with all of the atrocities of World War II and all the diabolical powers set against the Jewish people, God has a special plan. And these people, chosen and elect by him, have been kept, preserved, protected, and defended down through the centuries in a way that points to the sovereign hand of God. That was evident, and we see it here in Joseph, who is sold into slavery. And I've often thought, what did Joseph think about at 17, when a rope was put around his neck, and the whistling whip of someone walking him back of him lashed him as he crossed the desert going toward Egypt? He had had great dreams. Would anything come of these dreams? And yet the hand of God is at work. God is at work in this hardship. He is taken down to Egypt, and there he is placed on a slave block, and he is sold. And Potiphar looks at this young man, and he sees that he is well-favored and handsome and brighter looking than most of the people that are sold on that block. And he pays good money for him. And he got a bargain. Because in just a little while, Joseph 
is in a position of authority in all of Potiphar's house. Everything that he does prospers. But there is a key line that we must never forget in this important story in the Bible. It says that the Lord is with him and that the Lord blessed Potiphar's house because the Lord was with Joseph. Does God bless someone's house because you come into it? And because you are good and yielded to the purposes of the Lord and others are blessed by your presence, we ought to be a blessing. We ought to be a blessing. And Joseph is a blessing in Potiphar's household. And you would think that with these great gifts that he has for administration, and he is promptly elevated to a position of authority, so that Potiphar, this captain of the king's guard, only knows the food which he himself eats, but everything else is done at Joseph's command. But then a reverse comes. Temptation. Potiphar's wife is passionately attracted to Joseph. And day after day after day after day, she seeks to seduce him into immorality. But Joseph does not give in to the immorality. He does not use soft terminology regarding sin. He says to her, to her how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When we violate another person, we sin against God. When we break the sanctity of a vow made to God, we bring harm. And so Joseph and his morality seem so strange today where you have homosexuality, lesbianism, adultery, the theme of a great percentage of everything that you see on television. And yet look how he shines here. Here is a tremendous person. He resists temptation. He resists temptation, then he is lied about. And a weaker person might have thought, well, I have tried to be true to my God, and what does it get me? It only gets me into further trouble, because you know the story of how she seeks to seduce him one day when all of the servants are gone. He will not yield to her but flees from her presence and she holds his coat and then screams for help and then says to others that he had sought to rape her and it was all a lie. And I have an idea that Potiphar was not so stupid as to think that she was not making advances at this handsome young man. Otherwise, Joseph's head would have been served up on a platter. But instead, he is put into prison. And in prison, God blesses him. In prison, he becomes the head of everything there. The jailers can see that there is an excellent spirit with him because the Lord is with him. And while he may have been foolish in reporting his dreams when he was a young boy, the iron has entered into his soul as the lesson in the Psalms told us today, through the experiences through which he has passed, 
and we are seeing a grand character develop and how God will use this astonishing and amazing young man. In prison, the butler and the baker are there. And you remember that they had dreams, and the Bible doesn't have much room for dreams. There's very little of dreams in the Bible. But the Egyptians placed great stock in them. And the baker and the butler tell Joseph their dreams. And you know what happens. Joseph is able to interpret the dreams correctly. And the baker is put to death, evidently had been accused of some conspiracy in the palace. But the butler is restored to his place of prominence in the, pa in the palace. And the butler was asked by Joseph before he left the prison, don't forget me. And when you get to a place where you can help me, remember me. Oh boy, politics. <laughs> you ever work for a politician? I won't forget you. You wait till I get into office. I'll do something nice for you. You can count on me. Don't always believe it. They'll remember you as long as you can help them. <laughs> and this is exactly what happened with this butler. He forgot all about Joseph until one day Pharaoh had a dream. And the dream was very troublesome to Pharaoh because it concerned famine in the land and because it concerned cattle and grain. And he demanded an interpretation of his dream. And you know what's happened to those around him when they couldn't give him advice. And suddenly, the butler remembers his faults. And he says, oh yes, I do remember my faults this day. And there was a man that I was in prison with, and his name is Joseph. And Joseph is brought from prison, and he correctly interprets the dream and tells the Pharaoh how the shifting sands of the deserts which have created the gift of the land of Egypt and the Nile and the cattle that come from it and all of this which possesses the king's thinking and he must have been a bright king how God can use all of this and he tells him that God is in back of the interpretation of the dream. And Pharaoh says, if I only had a man who could administer the affairs of state. And of course, Joseph is that man. And the key line keeps coming back like a refrain. The hand of the Lord is with him, for an excellent spirit dwelt in Joseph. And you know the story from there. How he is able to organize and take the people out of that famine and how the king is grateful for what has been done and then how one day his own brothers recognize that their people are starving and they have to send to Egypt. This is one of the most beautiful stories in the world and they come there and they see their brother but they cannot recognize him now because the years have gone by and his Egyptian dress is far different and they who had sold him into slavery could scarce have dreamed that such a thing would have ever happened. And notice that he now enters into a new 
testing of character. This is the test of great success and prosperity. One man in a thousand may fall to a woman who seduces him, but how many people can bear the success that Joseph bears and not be spoiled by that success? But he is not. He is able to use this, and you know how he deals with his brothers and how finally he arranges for them all to be brought there to the land of Egypt and to be saved from starvation. Now, why am I telling you this important story and why is so much of the book of Genesis taken up with telling it? Because Jacob had 12 sons. And because the 12 tribes of Israel figured grandly into the plan of God, and because God will use this man, Joseph, not only to save the people of Israel, these 12 tribes, but he will use them in creating character in them. He will unite them, even in Egypt. He will unite them by being able to forgive, and that's a tremendous test of character. Are you able to forgive? Did you know that most murders in the United States are committed within families? That's a truth. Most murders are committed by members of a family. Hatred can come, estrangement can come, and this is a bitter and evil thing. But see the hand of God at work here, for Joseph displays forgiveness. That's why I read that passage from the 45th chapter, that when Joseph finally discovers himself to them and reveals himself, he cries for everyone to go out from me. So there was no other man when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? What a remarkable story. And then he comes on. Do not be grieved or angry, he says to these who misused him. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these years, and there are still years to come. But God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. You meant it evil for me, but God meant it for good. How do you deal with the things that go wrong in life? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? I heard someone this week uh, tell the story of a, a man who was taken to the hospital in an automobile accident, and one of his eyes had to be uh, the surgeon told him that they could only get partial sight restored to one eye and that one of his eyes would have to be completely removed. And he, the man's face fell terribly. And the surgeon told him, he said, we'll have to restore this side of your face, face and we'll put in a glass eye there. 
And then this remarkably strong person said, if you're going to put a glass eye in, could you put a twinkle in it? <laughs> now that's a tremendous spirit, isn't it? That's a great spirit. If we believe that the hand of God is with us, no matter how harsh and bitter the circumstances may be, it means that God is working some wonderful purpose out for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. This week I knelt by the bedside of a man who has cancer. In a radical way, Henry Shewitt, pray for him. They will try the bone marrow treatment where they freeze some bone marrow from his body and place it back in to help uh, regenerate blood cells after they have destroyed the bone marrow. A radical, extensive thing, treatment. What do you do when you come up against that? Where is God? God is here in all of these bitter circumstances. Don't exaggerate evil. Don't let it get too big so that we think God cannot control it because he's working on schedule and he will work his purposes out and he will work them out to his own glory. Our children here and our people also have heard me speak often about uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, The Seven Chronicles of Narnia. And you all know, of course, about Aslan, the Christ figure in these books which Lewis wrote for little children that were... Uh, and you all know, of course, about Aslan, the Christ figure in these books which Lewis wrote for little children that were uh, in bombed out London, were taken to an eccentric professor's house and go through the adventures in that grand house. Well, there is a, a wonderful lesson there. A minister uh, who is a specialist in C.S. Lewis and teaches a course on C.S. Lewis said that he was one night in the home uh, trying to take care of a little boy who was a friend of, the, of his family. And he tried to get him to go to bed at night, and the little guy was about seven years old, and for some reason he was terribly afraid when it got dark. And uh, he, said, I, he said, I look outside the window, and it's all dark out there, and, he's, and I think there are bad things out there. And my friend tried to assuage his grief, and he couldn't. Then finally he thought of the Aslan stories in the Narnia books. And he said, now listen, wait a minute. He said, you know the Narnia tales, and the little boy did know them. And he said, you know how big Aslan was, the great lion, big as the lions in Trafalgar Square, big enough for ten children to sit on the back of the lion. That's Aslan, the Christ figure. And he said, suppose Aslan were here, and we were to climb on Aslan's back. And you know, in your imagination, you can do all kinds of things. And he said, we would go and look out the window. Would you be afraid of the dark if you were on Aslan's back? And he said, no. And he said, would you be afraid to look in this room or in that room if you were riding on Aslan's back? And he said, no. Now, the story has a meaning for those of us of riper years. That when we face melanoma, that when we face stark tragedy that's unexplainable, and hurts us more bitterly than we can relate to anyone else. That if we ride on Aslan's back, there is no evil so big that he cannot defeat it. He's the Christ 
of every crisis, and he keeps us in the midst of all that tribulation, and we must cling to that. I love this Mother's Day poem. Joseph's mother, Moses' mother, Daniel's mother, and then Mary, the mother of our blessed Lord. All of these might have had these thoughts, but our wisdom is not sufficient. God's wisdom is. All things do work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let us prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of heaven. We thank you for the great proof of the resurrection from the dead because our Savior has been raised from the dead. And we are thankful, Lord, that we can look forward to a day when all the injustices of life will be corrected and we will see your perfect plan having been worked out for us. So while our understanding is so limited, and while our vision is so darkened by the pain and the circumstances of life, keep us from being emotionally stampeded into despair and help us to know that with you there is blessed hope and that we, with you there is reality and that with you there is everlasting joy. So help us to cling to your purposes. We thank you for the experiences of others which teach us and pray that you will help us to learn from our own too. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore. Mm -hmm.